everybody, I'm Sophia Tolp, the managing editor here at the Ithacan, and welcome to our newest podcast, Past Deadline. I'm really excited about this one because we'll be diving into the story behind some of our most important stories from week to week. I'll be inviting some guests to sit down with us here in our lovely studio, and I'll be calling others in, and we'll talk through some of the headlines in this week's paper and dig a little deeper into how it came to be. From the Ithacan, this is Past Deadline with Sophia Tolp. Now to a search for answers after a murder on Cornell University's Ivy League campus. A student from a nearby college stabbed to death. ABC's Gio Benitez is on the scene there. Police are searching for the killer of a Brooklyn teenager who was stabbed to death at a college party. Hazel Sanchez from our New York station WCBS spoke with the grieving family. As WNY News has been reporting, 19-year-old Anthony Nazaire was stabbed to death. This week, we'll be talking about a story that has made a huge impact in our community for over a year now. So Anthony Nazaire was a sophomore at Ithaca College, and he was stabbed to death in a fight at Cornell University on August 28th of last year, so a little over a year now. It was the first homicide in Ithaca in over five years, and it sent shockwaves through the community, and it still does. This is a crime that, that stunned all of us, and I know shook our entire community. It's not something we were used to in Ithaca, New York. First homicide we've had in Ithaca in, in over five years. And uh, many of us did not know how to respond. Because uh, a crime like this, of course, um, has robbed Anthony's family of, uh, of their pride and their dream, robbed a young man of the promise of the rest of his life. And it robbed so many of us of our sense of security. That was Ithaca Mayor Savante Myrick at a press conference in November of last year. So about nine weeks ago on August 28, 2016, at approximately 1.57 in the morning, officers from the Ithaca Police Department and the Cornell University Police Department responded to a large fight at the intersection of College Avenue and Campus Road. Upon arrival, officers located two male victims suffering from wounds. One victim was flown to Upstate Medical Center for treatment, of several stab wounds and was later released. The second victim, Anthony Nazir, a 19-year-old Ithaca College School of Business Administration student from the Bronx, was transported to Cuba Medical Center where he was pronounced dead from his injuries. The investigation culminated this afternoon with the arrest of 23-year-old Najee Green of Freeville, New York. And you just heard John Barber, chief of police for the Ithaca Police Department, at that same news conference last year. He named the suspect Najee Green. But that was almost 10 weeks after the stabbing had taken place. And a trial finally began June 1st of this year, but it never ended in a murder conviction, only second-degree assault. So a retrial will actually be held this fall to settle the charges. And jury selection for that retrial is scheduled for September 15th. So without further ado, this week I'd like to welcome Grace Ellitson, our news editor here at the Ithacan, who has been on our staff for three years now and has been with us reporting the story from the beginning and will continue to report on the retrial. Hello, I'm Grace Ellitson, news editor of the Ithacan, and I'm excited to be here. Thanks for being here, Grace. But before we get to what's happening with the story now, I want to take a look back. So first, here's Kayla Dwyer, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, so last fall, 2016. I called her the other day to reflect on what went down a year ago. Hello. So this is an incredibly tragic and sensitive topic, 
And at the time on the Ithacan, I was actually the news editor. I was working alongside you and Grace on our team. And I wrote the initial post that very next morning, Sunday morning, when I got the news. And it was really, it was just shocking um, as a student and as a journalist. And, you know, I cried while writing that first draft. But at the same time, uh, we really had to make sure we had all the details and we weren't reporting misinformation or fear-mongering or sensationalizing the event, um, even though so many questions were completely unanswered. Kayla, can you talk about what the atmosphere was like on campus and in the newsroom then as editor-in-chief? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it not only was that my role at the time, but it was also basically the first week of school. Um, we really had to wake up, I would say. And, and it was also a Sunday morning, as you might recall. Um, so just the wake-up call and, and the shock of um, this kind of violence touching our community was, it, it really was um, just, it, it'll be pretty much be forever imprinted into my memory of that time. Um, and, you know, of course there's the initial just breaking news, how do we handle that, you know, send a photographer to the scene, send a reporter there, you know, check social media for all the stuff that was going on around that time period, call the police, keep calling a bunch of people. But then there were, you know, of course, the necessary conversations that had to take place pretty quickly um, about what's our plan from here. You know, this is something none of us in the newsroom had ever dealt with. I think what's interesting and positions us differently is that we are students, student journalists. So we have our ear to the ground here on campus, and I remember we knew a lot of things before they were confirmed, but we really had to keep that journalistic integrity and ethics about using that information. You know, looking back on that time, I I still don't know if what we ended up doing was the best or most effective strategy, but, you know, it's hard to say. But I think the priority at the time was being sensitive and taking extra care. So I would say that we definitely acted more on the side of our consciences and, and sensitivities as students, more so than on, I, I guess you'd say, journalistic rigor, per se. Because um, this not only shocked us as journalists, it shocked us as students. Right. And another thing was we had this pressure from all sides. So people needing information fast, people wanting us to respect the privacy of the family and the friends, but we also had like parents needing information about the safety of this community. I know you kind of mentioned just now that we did kind of act more with our conscience um, than with, like you said, journalists who are more separated from the situation. And to me, I think it's interesting that we still had pressure from students saying, don't cover it at all. You know, like this is sensitive. You're exploiting the issue. And I remember we we talked a lot about that. Like we thought we were doing the best that we could and being as sensitive as we could. Um, what were those discussions like and why do you think it's important that we did cover it? Right, right. I mean, I, I find that to be the case more so today than ever before. I mean, um, there's just this natural distrust and disdain toward um, media covering tragedy. Because a lot of times media isn't as sensitive as, as it should be in doing those sorts of things. Um, and I guess from those students' perspectives, it's like, guys, give us a break, you know? Um, but from our I mean, in those conversations, I, we never let go of the idea and, you know, the firmly held belief that 
this is also our role, you know, to memorialize what has happened here and his life and um, make um, make clear in in the history books what happened here. And, you know, I mean, there, there's nothing more important in my mind and in our minds at the time than documenting what has happened in the, in the most sensitive but also accurate way. Um, and in doing so, we, we decided that we wouldn't approach, it, you know, to kind of get to that middle ground of being sensitive to those complaints and, and those, um, you know, opinions, but also honoring our duty, we decided that we wouldn't approach anyone at the memorial service itself. And it was a silent, I went, it was a silent service. And the most I did was exchange sympathetic glances with, you know, people I recognized or knew. And looking back, I, I probably could have gone to the pub or something and tried to talk to people after the service. Um, at the time, I just said, nope, not bothering anyone today. I, you know, not gonna, just not gonna do it. And that might have been overly cautious. You know, uh, maybe I could have talked to a few people. But um, at the time, you're right. You know, those those opinions, those people saying that and criticizing us even covering it all, it, it definitely left an imprint. And we wanted to be sensitive to that opinion. So Grace, let's bring us into the now. So obviously coming back to school, we flash back to what this time last year was like. So this is really present on the minds of the community. Uh, Where did you begin in picking up where we left off last year in the spring? Yeah, so I think in the spring we left off with going into the trial. We knew the trial was happening in June. Obviously we left mid-May, so the trial ensued while we were all being crazy over the summer doing our own internships. So I reported remotely from where I live, Cape Cod, and basically we got all our coverage from the local media that was covering the trial at the time. And I believe when the trial ended late June, we basically picked up what happened from local media and put out a story on what the final verdict was, which was that uh, Najee Green, who's the alleged killer, um, was convicted of second degree assault. And then the jury deadlocked on the murder charge. So they couldn't decide um, if he really was guilty with that or not. So where are we now? I know you and the news team have done a lot of kind of like shoe leather reporting, going to the court, actually getting documents and trying to bring the story back to where we are now. Right. So we picked up early this year. It's really not ideal relying off of local reporting to report this kind of a story because you do want to verify everything that uh, local outlets did report. Um, so me and Sofia Damucci, who's the other assistant news editor, and Sierra Guardiola, who's the other assistant news editor, we all kind of took turns going down to the county courthouse, sifting through those files, <laughs> bugging town clerks about it, um, who were so helpful with helping us not only find the documents, but helping us understand them. So we had to kind of piece together what happened over the summer. Um, What challenges have you faced this year in kind of bringing the story up from the past? Obviously, this is the one-year anniversary of Anthony's death. So while it has been a year, you know, those wounds are still very fresh um, for the community and his friends and his family. And, And obviously, we've done everything that we can to wrap up the reporting for the summer. The only new piece of information that's come out is that there is a retrial scheduled for September 15th. Um, The jury selection is scheduled for September 15th. The biggest challenge for me has been, you know, trying to talk to people who he, you know, who he loved and who he had connections with. Because, you know, as journalists, I think it's our job to, from what I, from my perspective, it's my job as a journalist to preserve, document, and honor the humanity 
in the world and especially at Ithaca College within our community. And it's hard to convey to people that that's all that I'm trying to do. This is a very sensitive subject for a lot of people. It's close to their hearts. And I totally understand that going into into any interview. If I could just give them a 15-minute spiel of, of who I am and what I'm trying to do here, that would be ideal. But obviously, you know, not everybody has that time. Um, so when I would walk up to people and ask them, you know, if they're willing to interview with me, they would just turn away. Um, and, and that's fine. <laughs> I understood and I didn't, you know, want anything else from them um, because it, I already had that kind of... Um, I was split going into interviewing people because it's my job to go up and, you know, document that humanity. But obviously that comes at, a, at an emotional price for people and they don't want to do that. Um, so, so that was very tricky. Going to the Remembrance Gathering was especially tough. A lot of people, you know, there were, they, some people had said they wanted to keep it light. They wanted to, to you know, not keep it as somber. But it, it was just kind of impossible. You know, everyone there had lost someone they loved. You know, his friends were crying and um, quietly, but they were crying. And I think, you know, I didn't know him personally, but through their expressions and through what they said, I, you know, once I had left the Remembrance Gathering, I cried the entire walk back to the park school to write the story. And even, like, while I was writing it, I. I just was crying yeah, the whole time. You see that photo of his grandmother, right? Anthony's grandmother um, that we had on the front page of our paper this week touching that pear tree that was planted in his honor. Kind of took my breath away. I know you'd said on deadline, you know, it was like he was, she was trying to like reach out to him. Yeah, we, we had a conversation. We had two pictures of her. One of her interacting, touching the tree, which made the, the front page. And one of her, you know, looking at the plaque standing about five feet away. And, you know, I had argued for the one of her touching the tree because it was almost like she was reaching out to him. She was, you know, reaching out to the symbol to connect herself with her grandson. Um, I'm sure if that was really what she was trying to do, she might have just been looking at a pretty leaf. Um, but It was poignant. It was powerful. Right, yeah it, yeah. it definitely was. And, you know, seeing his family there, all our hearts go out to them. And you spoke to the recipient of a scholarship that has been um, endowed and named for Anthony in memorial. His name is Chris Ford. He's a sophomore at the college. Um, here's a snippet of that conversation. Me coming from where I come from, the same kind of like territory as mm-hmm. him, to some degree, I was exposed to some of the similar things that he was exposed to. Mm-hmm. So as, as, as two African-American um, children coming from New York City, and then coming up to a school like this, you know, it's like, yeah, we didn't know each other, you know, but we was going to have each other backs regardless just because mm-hmm. we were black men trying to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of, of, of if I had a conversation with him or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you so much. No like, talking about this. Um, I know I've been reaching out to a bunch of his friends trying to, you know, because we're writing this piece, not just on the Remembrance Gathering, but kind of, like, to honor him a year later. And so many people, you know, understandably, just don't want to talk about it. Um, so I, I really appreciate you coming and talking to me about this. Yeah, that's emotional. It's, it's tough for everyone involved hearing that. Um, 
What are your thoughts looking back on that conversation or just in summary? Talking to Christopher and meeting him was a great experience in general just because of how, you know, much of a leader he is and how much of a great guy he is. And you can see through our conversation why he so much deserves that scholarship. Um, From everything that everybody has told me about Anthony, I almost saw that mirrored in Chris. From the Ithacan, this is Past Deadline with Sophia Tolp. Thanks for listening.